living up to our promise, it's once again time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, bringing calm in the chaos on the first Monday of this very unusual month, broadcasting from a supremely sanitized and deserted Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and our reliable and enthusiastic team of reviewers have had even more time to pick and choose what they'd like to recommend listeners consider reading this month. We've continued with our new competition format too, as it worked well last month, so please listen closely for competition details and how to enter. We're giving away a hugely appropriate read that I don't think anyone will want to miss. Beverly Ruiz Muller gave considerable thought to her choice of books and has even themed her contribution. No prizes for guessing the topical theme, but there may well be a prize for listening closely to her reviews of The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson, and Plague, Pox and Pandemics by Howard Phillips. Vanessa Levenstein was duly impressed by Chanel Miller's Know My Name, the memoir of the woman previously known as Emily Doe, who was at the centre of a much-publicised rape case in the U.S., Melvin Minnar highly recommends A Paragon by Colin McCann, which he describes as truly uplifting, giving hope amid all and our division. While Penny Lorimer provides our monthly dose of thrillers with Blood Will Be Born by Gary Donnelly and Three Hours by Rosamond Lipton. John Hanks gives his sweeping view of Birds of Southern Africa and their tracks and signs by Lee Guttridge, and Beryl Eichenberger stays with flying things, but takes us across continents with The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. Prepare to fasten your seatbelts for Philip Todras's interview with Damien Barr as they discuss the author's latest novel, You Will Be Safe Here which Philip calls a rough but riveting ride that transports the reader back to Boer War era in South Africa. Leslie Beek brings to the table her inspired choice for young readers, both Tiger-themed, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, written and illustrated by Judith Kerr, republished in 2018, and Tiger Walk by Diane Hoffmeyer, illustrated by Jess Hodgson. Let's begin with Beverly Ruth Miller and her aptly themed contribution. My broadcast today is titled The Virus Edition because it is about two books that I think are not only very readable but also really useful in trying to understand what is happening in our world during this troubling time. Firstly, Bill Bryson, best known for his hilarious books on travel and his brilliant bestseller on science, A Short History of Nearly Everything, has tackled a big book on The Body, A Guide for Occupants. We spend our whole lives in one body, and yet most of us have no idea how it works and what goes on inside it. My review was going to be rather different tackling, for example, the medical myths we pass on, such as the notion that we only use 10% of our brain, which is not even close to true. We may not use it very sensibly, but we employ all our brain in one way or another. And in the short time that I have been speaking to you, your body has manufactured more than a million red blood cells. But for obvious reasons, today I'm concentrating on diseases, in particular viruses. A virus is a piece of bad news wrapped up in a protein, said Nobel laureate Peter Medawar. Most viruses are not bad news to humans. Of the hundreds of thousands thought to exist over many millions of years, less than 300 infect humans and just under 600 infect animals. They are very tiny and somewhat weird, being neither quite living nor quite dead. They don't eat or breathe and have no means of locomotion. They have to hitchhike to get around. We have to go out and collect them, as we have now all discovered, from the air we breathe or is sneezed at us, from door handles and handshakes. But put them in a living cell and they burst into fantastical breakdancing. They are also very patient. A virus found frozen in Siberia for 30,000 years leapt into action like an Olympic gymnast once defrosted. 
and they are enormously successful at catching a ride. A study in Arizona shows that the average adult touches their face 16 times an hour, me probably more than that, and each time transfers the pathogen from nose to household object, snack bowl, or office building. If you touch it, it will arrive. A successful virus, writes Bison, is one that doesn't kill too well and therefore can circulate widely, which is why flu is a perennial threat. The great flu epidemic of 1918 racked up a global death toll of tens of millions. But Ebola is actually more terrifying in that it's almost ludicrously infectious. A single droplet of blood may contain a hundred million Ebola particles, each one as lethal as a hand grenade. Yet Ebola is clumsy at spreading, one of the reasons we are less worried about it than our own current coronavirus threat. Smallpox was almost certainly the most devastating disease in the entire history of humankind, infecting almost everyone in contact with it, with about a 30% death rate and highly contagious. Its weakness was that it only infected humans and not other creatures, and that was how we were able to eradicate it. It chose the wrong enemy. I wish I could spend more time on Brasson's book, but now I want to talk about an important South African book which could not be more pertinent to our pandemic. Professor Howard Phillips of the University of Cape Town, who specializes in the social history of medicine, a few years ago published a book titled Plague, Pox and Pandemics, which I read with close attention and have recommended ever since, now more than ever. When reading it, I was writing a book about the Boer War, during which the plague arrived in Cape Town on ships carrying horses and feed. But it is the section on pandemics which is most useful now, and it goes into very close detail about the horror of the great influenza outbreak at the end of 1918, when soldiers returning from World War I carried it back to their home countries. South Africa was the third worst hit in the world, Western Samoa and India being the top two. 300,000 people here were dead in six weeks. That was 6% of our entire population. Short, sharp, and savage, Black October described this country's worst epidemic ever, for it outdid in intensity, range, and lethality every other epidemic in the subcontinent before or since. It was unfairly called Spanish flu because Spain, not being at war, did not censor reports of the outbreak of the surrounding countries, but it did not originate there. The second more deadly strain of this virus arrived in Cape Town aboard two troop ships in September of 1918 and raced inland. By mid-October, almost the entire country had been overwhelmed by this fast-killing flu, which in Cape Town killed 400 people a day, 40 times greater than the usual toll. Cemeteries were overwhelmed, and often bodies were buried in mass graves. The H1N1 flu virus that caused it was a wholly new form of the disease to which no one had prior immunity. In many young adults with a strong immune system, infection triggered an immune over-response known as a cytokine storm, so massive that it caused extremely acute respiratory disease. This may explain the very high mortality rate amongst young people, those in the 18 to 40 age group, its distinctive feature around the globe. One of those at risk was a young schoolboy in Sutherland, the great poet N.P. van Weyckloh. He and his three brothers survived by being restored to their isolated family farm. Throughout the centuries, there are records of those who isolated and survived, such as Shakespeare, Boccaccio, and Isaac Newton. Isolation, or as we now call it, lockdown, along with careful hygiene, is the only way to stop its spread. Pay close attention. This has happened before, and we do know what to do. These two books will help you navigate your path to safety. I wish you at all a safe passage and good health. 
Please note that Jakarta is reprinting Howard Phillips' book as soon as it's practical. But meanwhile, they have issued a Kindle version, which you can access online. Well, we've just heard Beverly talk about Howard Phillips's comprehensive history of epidemics in South Africa, aptly titled Plague, Pox and Pandemics. Jakarta Media is offering two lucky listeners instant gratification with free access to the ebook version of this timely read while we're still confined to our homes. So for your chance to win one of these two ebooks, send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword book choice, your full name, and the answer to this question. What is the third P in the title of Howard Phillips' book? Plague, pox, and what? Our SMS line is 39792, standard rate supply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 061-799-1013. So, remember to send the keyword book choice, your full name and the answer via SMS or Telegram, one entry per person, and the competition will close at 12.45, just before the end of the show. Vanessa Levenstein, you found Chanel Miller's Know My Name, an excellent read. Tell us more. The survival of a horrific ordeal, be it genocide, rape, illness or the death of someone close, does not necessarily translate into a powerful memoir. This is not to say that there's only room for books penned by talented authors. However, when the content is powerful and the language meets it, you have a superb literary work. Emily Doe used language to change the way not only the judicial system, but society viewed rape survivors. The perpetrator was a Stanford student with a promising career as an Olympian swimmer. How inconvenient that Doe would mess up his future by pressing rape charges. That was clearly the point of view of the judge, who gave Brock Turner a six-month sentence, of which he only served three. When Doe's victim's statement went viral, the public became aware of the case and their outrage forced the judge to be recalled. Doe's eloquence, honesty, raw emotion and description of what she went through to achieve justice was not only an eye-opener, it was a game-changer. The intoxicated, half-naked body behind a dumpster refused to be silenced. In Know My Name, Chanel Miller steps out behind the pseudonym of Emily Doe to say, this is who I am and this is what happened. We get to know the young Chanel, polite, shy, apologetic and hard-working. She's the antithesis of a blazing activist. She writes, I'll put on three sweaters before I ask you to turn up the heat. She's kind and gentle. And here's how this book is so interesting. She never set out to become the voice of change. She was scared, confused, and most of the time had no idea whatsoever what was happening or what the implications were. She reacted to every step of the system with equal doses of fear and bravery. The case is a textbook example of the double standards applied to sexual assault victims and their assailants. While Turner was characterized as an upstanding young man surely incapable of assault, Miller became the drunk girl at the party, and this narrative was seized not only by trolls, but by Malcolm Gladwell. In talking to strangers, Gladwell claims that the culprit in the Brock Turner case was alcohol consumption, where people are bound to misunderstand each other's intentions, desires and motivations. No, this was not the case, Mr Gladwell, and it's a perpetuation of this victim-blaming culture which we need to radically change. No, my name will hopefully go a long way towards changing this. Chanel sees the story within the context of the grander picture, and thankfully lacks that meish, self-centered narrative, which is a trap easily enough to fall into when writing a memoir. Her words chosen with a delicate care, yet fluidity, makes her journey so engaging. Towards the end of the book, Trump has just been elected. The Me Too movement has begun. Chanel writes, From grief, confidence has grown, remembering what I've endured. From anger, stem purpose. She's able to see the whole. Even Brock Turner, she says, is not all bad. Know My Name should be in every school and public library. First, through Emily Doe, and now through Chanel Miller, we understand the experience she went through and that of countless of other women. We know her name, and what I'm also sure of is that we will read more from this powerful and resilient voice. 
That was All I Ask of You from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, played by the Hungarian trio. Melvin Minar, you discovered in Colin McCann's A Paragon hope amid our and all division, especially amid the gloom of the invisible virus. Together with the gloom of the invisible virus, we live in the saddest time of division, an era of us and them. Economies, politics, identity, and the many complications of being human beings often seem to have returned in contemporary tribalism and boundaries. It's global, and it is South African, and it makes the fine Irish-born, New York-based writer Colin McCann's brand-new book, A Prairogon, a novel, such an apt, timely, deeply satisfying read for this time and our time. Already a widely acclaimed author, his 2009 novel, Let the Great World Spin, won the highest awards. The new book, actually a narrative riff and only slightly fictionalized telling of a great and deep reality of division, has made waves around the world. The a novel part in the title gives the author the space to dwell past the facts alone. Partly this is due to a remarkable craftsmanship in the prose and manner of words, sentences and construction, a wide reach across the thousand and one longer and shorter sections that reference the glorious and richness of the classic Arabian folk stories of a thousand and one nights. It's a reach that propels one to read on and on and on. It has picked up kudos for the impact, the power of an emotional bridge across one of the greatest divides of our century, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, for a lack of a precise and less emotive term. McCann sets off in the very real, on-the-ground personal, and takes the story far beyond. And this is where the rather strange but engaging title comes from, the endless and yet ending the paradoxical. Aperogon is a geometric term, and I quote Wikipedia, a generalized polygon with a countable infinite number of sides. Countable infinite, in other words, a paradoxical construct. And the remarkable friendship of the Israeli Rami El-Hanan and the Palestinian Basam Araman, brought together by grief for the death of their daughters through opposing military forces to which each belonged, is a deeply moving paradoxical construct of humanism. Shamar Elhanan blasted into, and I quote, a scattered human jigsaw, end quotes, at the age of 13 by a suicide bomber, and Abir Araman, age 10, killed by a trigger-happy Israeli soldier, bring them together in this paradox of sadness and of hope. The story of the two men... In the early years, one senior in the Israeli military, the other jailed for throwing a bomb, is true. The story about their daughters being killed, one in a suicide bomb, the other by a rubber bullet, is true. The story about how they each decided on the route of peace, meeting at a project called Narrative 4 and joining an organization called the Parents Circle Family Forum, a joint Israeli-Palestinian initiative, is true. But from this personal history, McCann has constructed this wonderful book that allows him highways and byways to reflect on history, metaphors, and hard, cold facts of what is sometimes simply called the occupation, the seemingly indeterminable conflict of that strip of land in what is called the Middle East. McCann places the narrative in one day in 2016, starting with Rami setting off on his bike for a meeting with Bassam. Over a thousand and one chapters, some just fragments, it's a journey that in the reality of the divided and occupied Israel spins out in various directions. The roads, signs, some like apartheid, guards and checkpoint turnings into awful metaphors for a road that has seemed to have no destination. Upper Rogon is a moving, deeply emotional experience, paved with grief but also soaked in the human reality and passion. It is also truly uplifting. Hope amidst our and all division. For your chance to win one of two ebooks that Jakarta Media is giving away, copies of Howard Phillips' Plague, Pox and Pandemics, answer 
Uh, or send an FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the key, the keyword book choice, your full name and answer to this question. What is the third P in the title of Howard Phillips's book? Plague, Pox and What? Our SMS line again, 39792. Where standard rates apply, our WhatsApp and Telegram, 061-799-1013. The competition closes at 12.45. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd be If I were a wealthy man, wouldn't have to work hard, if I were a pity bitty rich, diggle diggle diddle diddle man, I'd build a big tall house with the rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of the town. Fine with the real wooden floors Coming down and one more leading nowhere just for sure. I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear, squawking just as noisily as they can, and each loud quack and On the ear, as if to say, here lives a wealthy man. If I were a rich man, here All day long, I'd be dee If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Lord who made the lion and the lamb You decreed I should be what I am Would it spoil some vast eternal plan If I were a wealthy man That was If I Were a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof Sung by Ruel Bjorkus Penny Lorimer, let's have our much-anticipated monthly dose of thrillers. You bring us Blood Will Be Born by Gary Donnelly and Three Hours by Rosamund Lipton. Blood Will Be Born by Gary Donnelly is the first in what promises to be a must-follow crime series. Detective Inspector Owen Sheen vowed never to return to Belfast, but is now on loan from London's Met to the Northern Ireland Police Service. His task is to set up a new serious historical offences team, However, he has a hidden agenda, which is to find answers to his brother's death. His brother was killed by a bomb during the Troubles, and this precipitated his family's flight to England. As in South Africa, where everything seems, despite many people's desire to move on, to be linked in some way to our apartheid history, anything in modern Northern Ireland tends to be related to the past sectarian violence, which began in about 1969 and continued for 30 years. When Sheen gets to Belfast, plans change, and he is instead made to babysit Detective Constable Aoife McCusker during her first murder investigation. An elderly woman has been slaughtered in her home, and her death threatens to prompt a return to the factional vicious. When Sheen gets to Belfast, plans change, and he is instead made to babysit Detective Constable Aoife McCusker during her first murder investigation. An elderly woman has been slaughtered in her home, and her death threatens to prompt a return to the factional viciousness of the past. Aoife is a single mother, and is new to the serious crime squad and very keen to make a good impression. She's intelligent and observant enough to make an excellent detective, but she's made some potentially ruinous decisions in the past which could destroy her career. John Fryer used to be an active member of the IRA, but is haunted by the death of a young man in 1976. He's been confined to a psychiatric hospital and still battles terrors and memories. His escape from there is engineered by Christopher Moore, 
a young psychopath who was born to a Protestant father and a Catholic mother. He is bent on revenge and wants to use Fryer's bomb-making abilities to make his paternal family pay for shunning him as a child and to reignite violence and chaos. Of course, it becomes more and more apparent that the two cases, the latest murder and the past bombing of Sheen's brother, are related, and that peace is always somewhat tenuous in this part of the world. This is a graphic and gritty story involving self-serving politicians come crime bosses, psychotic criminals and cops, some of whom are corrupt and some who are hardworking and determined to see justice done. It moves from one character's point of view to another, allowing readers to share different thoughts and feelings and keeps one guessing until the end. I was captivated, and I look forward to the next in the series. I must admit that when I read the words New York Times or Sunday Times bestseller on a cover these days, my first response is a rather cynical, oh yeah. I'm not sure how many copies a book has to sell in order to be a bestseller, but I find many of the thrillers that claim this honor are predictable, one-dimensional, and disappointing. Maybe whoever's in charge should update and revise the requirements necessary to make this claim. Having said that, I'm happy to report that Sunday Times best-selling author Rosamond Lupton does not disappoint with her latest thriller, Three Hours. The story is of a remote Somerset school, which is under siege. In the middle of a blizzard, an unknown gunman or gunmen begin it by shooting the headmaster and driving other staff and students to barricade themselves inside classrooms the theatre and the library. Ruffy, a teenage Syrian refugee with post-traumatic stress disorder, must save his little brother once again. Children in the library struggle to keep the wounded headmaster alive. The pottery teacher makes plans to save her class of seven-year-olds, and the drama teacher distracts her students with a rehearsal of Macbeth. Outside, a waiting parent tries desperately to contact her son with no success, while the emotionally damaged but brave deputy head works with a pregnant forensic psychologist to try and work out who has engineered this attack and why. What makes this novel stand out, though, are its meditations on human nature and the nature of love and relationship in all its forms. These are interspersed with scenes of nail-biting tension during which the characters begin to know what they themselves are capable of in a crisis and to appreciate the power of community. It's an immensely satisfying, action-rich thriller and thoroughly recommended. I'm really looking forward to tracking down Rosamond Lupton's previous three books and feasting on those. I reviewed Blood Will Be Born by Gary Donnelly and Three Hours by Rosamond Lupton. Last chance to win one of two e-book copies of Howard Phillips's Plague, Pox and Pandemics, which was reviewed by Beverly Ruiz Muller. Send FMR a WhatsApp telegram or sms with the keyword book choice your full name and answer to this question what is the third p in the title of howard phillips's book plague pox and what sms 39792 standard rate supply or whatsapp and telegram 061-799-1013 the competition closes at 12:45 p.m Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know. Climb every mountain, fold every stream, follow every
were listening to Climb Every Mountain from Rogers and Hammerstein's Sound of Music, sung by the Voice of Angels, part of the Tigerberg Children's Choir. From up the mountain onto the skies above, John Hanks brings us his sweeping view of birds of southern Africa and their tracks and signs by Lee Gutteridge. Any approach that can help us to identify a bird in the field is always most welcome. And I'm sure there must be many listeners who are enthusiastic birders who have an app on their mobile phones with all the South African bird calls. Lee Butteridge has written a book with the title Birds of Southern Africa and Their Tracks and Signs, which should have the same appeal as the bird call apps. In the introduction, he clarifies the meaning of the word tracking when he states, and I quote, to me, any aspect where you recognize a sign or sound or structure left in nature and can associate it with the species that made it is part of tracking, end quote. He goes on to explain that tracking with regards to birds includes not only footprints, but nests and nest holes, eggshells, shed feathers, droppings, feeding signs, and also regurgitated pellets and dust bathing sites when they are relevant. With over 950 species of birds recorded in Southern Africa, by any standard, it's a very ambitious undertaking to give an account of the tracks and signs of so many species, recognizing, of course, that those that never come to ground and would not leave spore, but would still leave clues linked to nest, eggshells, feathers, droppings, and feeding signs. Unfortunately, the book falls far short of the expectations raised by its title, as less than 200 of the 950 species that are listed in the index. And for some of those, there is no more than a photo of the birds, with no information whatsoever on their tracks and signs. It was very disappointing to see that just two of the species described have the full list of these various tracking options, namely for the blacksmith lapwing and the fiery neck nightjar. The most useful part of the book is a section on bird foot morphology, with superb illustrations of several species by South Africa's master tracker Louis Liebenberg, who really is a class of his own. And there are additional drawings of tracks by Warren Carey and Mark Elbrook. What is not useful in most cases are the many photographs of bird spore, which are often indistinct, such as the two photographs of the spore of the sociable weaver. These photographs take up a considerable part of the book, and with few exceptions, are of no use as a tool for identification, with very unequal coverage too. For example, is there any merit whatsoever in having seven photos of the spore of the blacksmith's lapwing and five of the spore of the cape spurfowl? Remains of eggshells under or round nests is often one of the first signs of the presence of a species in the field, but here again, the book falls very short. Only nine photos of eggs. Shed feathers fare marginally better, but they're used to help identifying a species is extremely limited in this production, with so few illustrated, and those that are of little value. The photo of a cape long claws throat feather occupies less than 5% of the photo, with the remainder being of a thumb and index finger holding the feather and an empty background. There's also a need for a major edit and proofreading with the inconsistencies in photo captions, far too numerous to mention, with one supposedly showing a cape wagtail at its nest with no sign of the bird whatsoever. There's undoubtedly a need for a book of this nature, and Lee Gutteridge has been courageous in taking it on. I hope he will work on a second edition, which will be far more comprehensive in the coverage of the various tracks and signs and focus on illustrations that genuinely will help with field identification. So the title of the book again, Birds of Southern Africa and Their Track Signs, it's written by Lee Gutteridge, is published in 2020 by Jakarna Media in Auckland Park, and you can buy a copy for 330 rand. Beryl Eichenberger stays with flying things, but takes us across continents with The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. In this time of COVID-19, where we are on lockdown, we've got plenty of time to read. And one of the books that I would recommend, which I read recently, is The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. It's published by Zafra. If anyone ever doubts the plight of refugees, then this is the book to read. 
Imagine being forced to leave a place that is home, to give up a thriving business, to watch those you love killed and see destruction at every turn. What does this do to your mind? How do you retain some semblance of normality? Well, you don't. This is the new normal and you have to make a plan. In The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri, we meet Nuri, the beekeeper, and Afra, his artist wife, and their adored small son, Sami. Life is good in the town of Aleppo in Syria. Nuri is in partnership with his cousin Mustafa, who introduced him to beekeeping. Their honey retail business is thriving. What could be better than this? Until Syria is torn apart by war, and the life they knew is changed forever, lost in violence, and destruction. The shocking events that Afra experiences render her blind, and the gentle Nuri is shaken to his core. Forced to escape, to follow Mustafa to an unknown Britain, they move across Turkey and Greece to an unknown future. Displaced and traumatized, they encounter smugglers who ask for exorbitant amounts of money, unsafe boats, Islands that in better times were idyllic but are now displacement centers, and tented camps in the center of cities that are the harbingers of thieves and drug dealers. Lodgings that offer little privacy are more opportunities for dehumanizing those already dehumanized. It is simply tragic. Nuri and Afra are broken people. That brokenness is like a cracking seam opening wider and wider as they travel. Afra retreats into her own world, and Nuri tries desperately to be upbeat. The experiences in the camps leave deep crevices in their relationship, and while Nuri is fiercely protective of his beloved Afra, their minds are far apart. Nuri imagines himself back with his beloved bees, giving the reader an idea of how important these little creatures are, not only to the environment, but also to a person's sanity. The ritual, the sensitivity, and the daily working are all aspects that are duplicated in humans. But delusion also takes over in this classic case of PTSD. Before Nuri can finally reach a safe harbor, he must unravel his frazzled mind, understand Afra's blindness, and take stock of their personal journey. Lefteri, the daughter of Cypriot refugees, worked as a volunteer at a UNICEF-supported refugee camp in Athens. She writes with an empathetic but honest pen. She makes the reader take stock of their own mostly fortunate circumstances. The writing is beautiful and flowing, and as an astute observer, she tells a compassionate story, building brave, memorable characters, and always the bees winging their way through the chapters, creating their own story. Illustrating the resilience of humanity and the unbelievable hardship that relationships can endure will make you look differently on the many millions who have had to flee war-torn regions. As the displaced become placed, you will remember their journey. And everyone I 
was High Lily, High Low from the film Lily, sung by Eve Boswell. Competition lines are now closed, so please listen to the announcement at the end of the show to see if you're one of the two lucky winners. It's time to fasten your seatbelts for Philip Todris' interview with Damien Barr as they talk about the author's latest novel, You Will Be Safe Here. I'm talking to Damien Barr about his, shall we call it, historical novel yes. called you will be safe here. And what's very important to me is you go into history. And I think what you get right for me is you understand the word has two sides to it. Mm. It's about the story, and then it's about him or her or us, or which is the voice you're going to use. And you take on two stories. So shall we start with the stories and what started you on this journey to South Africa? Yes, let's do that. Thank you very much. Um, I think that... For me, the story that led me to the history um, was the story of a boy called Raymond Boys um, who had been sent to a camp, a corrective camp, so-called, just outside Johannesburg um, by his mother and her stepfather. And this camp was run by former soldiers and they promised to make men out of boys. And this happened in South Africa in 2011, I think it was. And Raymond was sent to this terrible place and, and he was there tortured um, and killed. And this story um, was reported in the UK, I think, that the levels of violence were so extraordinary. Um, and the story was reported and I saw a picture of Raymond and he looked just like a boy who had come to my school in Scotland from South Africa, like a friend of mine. And I just felt this emotional connection with this boy and I wanted to know what had happened to him. Who was he? What kind of family did he come from? Who would send a child to a place like this? Um, who would run a place like this? And in what country do places like this exist? And so I didn't start out to write a novel. Um, I think it's really important to say that. I wasn't looking for an idea. I wasn't thinking, oh, I wonder if there's a story in South Africa. I was just struck by this boy and what happened to him and, and the novel came the novel came out of those feelings but I'd like to know how you connected it I mean I, I'm going to read this because this is what moved me mm. substantially you say respectfully dedicated to all the women children and men who died in British concentration camps and to all lost during the second world war 1899 to 1902 more civilians died in the camps than soldiers on the battlefield and to Raymond Bass 1996 to 2011, who shines bright amongst the stars and whose story took me to South Africa and led me back to 1901. Mm. So that's what you tell us. But now, how did it lead you back to 1901 and the Boer War? Well, because I wanted to understand the history of camps in South Africa and I wanted to understand the men who run these present day camps because they still exist in South Africa and it was people from the, the RVB, the AWB um, and the, the, the general the character in the novel who's inspired by this real life man called Alex de Coker I wanted to understand really what they thought they were achieving the way that they treated these boys and that's a hard place to go to um, uh, when I was writing the novel it was hard to make the general come alive because he just seemed like a baddie you know, like a bad guy and actually what I had to understand was that the men who run these places believe, genuinely believe on some level that they're doing good um, by seeking to prevent um, another white genocide as they see it what they want to do is return South Africa to the way it was before the Boer War before the defeat um, as these people see it and so I had to, to then understand 
understand the, the, the history and it felt to me like Raymond and, um, and the other boys who died in camps like this that their stories, their voices weren't being heard and it very much was the case that I, I knew nothing about the women and children who died in British concentration camps. It's not a history that we're taught in school. It's not something that we're proud of as a nation. You know, if you, if you think about how well-known the, the exploits and events of the First and Second World Wars are, you know, there are endless books and films. And, but the, the Boer War is just a sort of void. It's, a, it's an absence. Um, and, uh, you know, and when I found out about those women and children, I felt very clearly that their story hadn't been told and so for me the, the, the mirror is you know you have a story of these this boy in the present almost and these women and children in the past who have been put um, in a place to be contained to be punished um, and who have been silenced by history and I wanted to give them a voice and what did you find? I mean, some of the things that come out to me mm. were very strong women, mm. sometimes very vulnerable women yeah. and the children that you tend to follow the father is the absent figure. Well, I think this is, you know, it really struck me when I looked back at the first draft of the book. You know, here's a book about mothers and sons and absent fathers. And if anyone had read my memoir, which, which is the book I wrote before this, a memoir called Maggie and Me, it's about growing up uh, in a home where the father is absent and, um, and my primary relationship is with my mother, who was sometimes very strong and sometimes very weak. Um, and I think for me, this fiction is a way of asking those questions of history, but on a personal level, it's also a way for me to work through my own issues and my own thoughts and feelings about about mothers and sons. And you're right that in the first part of the book, it's Sarah, the farmer's wife, who is taken to Bloemfontein with her son, Fred. And in the second part of the book, it's Irma and Willem. Um, so we have, again, another mirror. You know, the, the, There are lots of echoes and resonances between both parts of, of the book and between the characters. And you really feel, now that you've gone so deeply into South African history, that these wounds are so deep mm. that several generations later when he's still dealing with those issues? Well, I'm, I'm sure if I asked you, or, and indeed as I've experienced with people when I've been here on, on book tour, you know, people come up to me and they say, my grandmother was in, you know, Bethany and this is what happened to her or my, my you know, my grandmother w was comforted by a Scottish soldier when, when the, they were burning their farm. You know, the, this history seems like a long time ago if we think about numbers but it's very present for people in the here and now and I think that it's a cliche but it's true that you know history does repeat itself if we don't if we don't if we aren't aware of it and this is painful difficult history to look at you know I had to go to some very dark places to research this novel um, but I think that fiction calls upon us to witness you know, and there is an ability in witnessing the suffering of I others. I think it's a very important witness that you have borne. I've been speaking to Damien Barr about You Will Be Safe Here. It is published by Bloomsbury and it's distributed locally by Johnson Ball Publishers. To round off our reading suggestions this month, Leslie Peak doesn't disappoint with her tiger-themed choice for younger readers. Tigers have an irresistible appeal for small children and they've been well treated by children's authors. Lions are interesting, but there's something essentially powerful about a tiger, and children who have much more subtle imaginations than we sometimes give them credit for sense that. I have two tiger books to suggest for the younger crowd. The first is a British classic that celebrated 50 years in print in 2018. Written and illustrated by Judith Kerr, it was a favourite when she told it to her children. Talk the tiger, her small daughter would command, and she did. So much so that when the children went to school and she had more time, she created this picture book beloved of generations of children. Perhaps some of that love comes from the comforting amiability of the family, who unexpectedly find a tiger at their tea time table. Sophie opened the door, and there was a big, furry, stripy tiger. The tiger said, Excuse me, but I'm very hungry. Do you think I could have tea with you? Sophie's mummy said, Of course, come in. So the tiger eats everything provided for a rather lavish tea for two and then looks around for something else to eat. I think the picture of Sophie and the tiger on the double page spread in the middle of the book tells us what the book may mean to children of four or five. 
The tiger, the fearsome tiger, allows Sophie to cuddle him. He's five times her size and clearly thinking about what to eat next. But it's never going to be Sophie. She's safe. And Daddy comes home at the prescribed time and seemingly unfazed by the fact that a now-departed tiger has eaten all the food in his house, takes his family to the cafe for supper. And there, on the pavement, we see a tiger-striped domestic cat. And we wonder. My other tiger book is a favourite that I reviewed last year, Tiger Walk by Diane Hofmeyer, illustrated by Jesse Hodgson. It takes its theme from the well-known painting by Henri Rousseau, Tiger in a Tropical Storm. In the story, Tom sees the picture in the gallery in London and draws his own version when he gets home. He draws the tiger big, with pointy teeth and a fishy tail and green jewel eyes. That night, shadows creep around Tom's room, dark and scary. From the wall, the tiger's green jewel eyes stare back at him. The whiskers twitch, the tail swishes. Tom holds his breath. The tiger steps forward. It pads closer and closer until Tom feels the hot tigery breath against his cheek. Let's go for a walk, the tiger purrs. But it's nighttime and it's very dark, whispers Tom. Tigers aren't afraid of the dark. Besides, there's a moon. Climb up. Hold tight. And Tom goes on a journey to face all his fears and learns to overcome them. The Tiger Who Came to Tea is written and illustrated by Judith Kerr and was published in 1968 and most recently republished by HarperCollins in 2018. Tiger Walk was written by Diane Hofmeyer and illustrated by Jesse Hodgson and was published in South Africa by Tafelberg in 2018. Well, we've reached the end of the hour and it's time to close this month's book choice. Thanks to all who entered our topical competition. The answer to the question, of course, was pandemics. And Corin Laurie and Steve Thomas will be contacted to arrange delivery of your ebooks shortly. Thanks to Wesley Lewis for making sure the program ran smoothly and the wonderful Rick Everett for his uplifting choice of music. Matinee is up next with Otto van der Walt, and here's hoping next month we shall meet again under better conditions. From me, Cindy Moritz, stay well, stay safe, and remember there's never been a better time to read, read, read. We're playing out with Maria from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story, sung by Jonathan Rocksmith.
never stop saying Maria. Yeah.